Welcome to DLA Piper's At the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper Managing Partner Emilio Ragosa is joined by Kevin Sheridan, Joint Global Head of Healthcare Investment Banking at Jefferies LLC, to discuss the importance of advisors having an understanding of the life sciences industry in order to provide value-added advice on transactions, including public offerings and M&A. Our topic for today is the importance for advisors to understand the life sciences industry in order to provide value-added advice with public company disclosures, public offerings, and mergers and acquisitions, which we commonly refer to as M&A transactions. I am Emilio Ragosa. I'm a partner in the corporate group of DLA Piper. My practice focuses on private placements, public offerings, and mergers and acquisitions, primarily for the life sciences industry. And in my free time, I'm also the managing partner for the New Jersey office of DLA Piper. I do not have a scientific background, but I have always enjoyed working with biotech and tech companies. And over the years, I have learned as much as I can about the industry. I'm honored to be joined by Kevin Sheridan, who is the joint global head of healthcare investment banking for Jefferies. Kevin, welcome. And please share with us your background at Jefferies. Well, thank you, Emilio. And I, too, am honored to be a part of this podcast. As you had mentioned, my title is Joint Global Head of Healthcare Investment Banking. I lead with a few other partners, a group of about 120 healthcare investment bankers globally. I work out of the New York office and Connecticut office, and my focus is on biopharmaceutical companies. I, too, do not have a biotechnology background in terms of advanced degrees, but I've been doing this for quite some time. And among the transactions that we work on, it's very similar to yours in terms of initial public offerings, follow-on offerings. Occasionally, there's some bond deals and convertible bond deals. And then, of course, mergers and acquisition transactions, both representing a company who is selling as well as the large cap buyers of companies. Kevin, thank you for that background. Now to dive into our topic. Each of these topics can be a session in itself, but for the time that we have today, we'll just touch upon each topic. As your advisors, such as your lawyer and your banker, they're critical to help a company prepare for a public offering or M&A transaction. For example, your lawyers at DLA can assist you to prepare for a public offering. To be ahead of the game, you should start to prepare at least one year in advance. The disclosures and audited financial statements are important, but also to start to think about independent directors and to build out your management team to be ready for a public offering. For an M&A deal, we will work with you to make sure your legal due diligence is ready for scrutiny and make sure that you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Now, Kevin, how do you and the Jeffries team help a client to prepare for, execute, and then close on a public offering or M&A deal? Well, sure. There's an awful lot there. And as you were speaking, Emilio, I couldn't help but think about recommending to our clients to have good legal representation. And I'm not just playing to the choir here, but I sincerely believe that you just really have to have partners or people who understand the industry and have a lot of experience working on these transactions. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of good lawyers out there who've done SEC transactions, who have helped put together S1s. But 
It's really impactful when you have someone who's helping you draft the business section of the initial public offering document called an S1, who can help craft the story and also, pretty importantly, make sure that the story is balanced. So often as bankers and frankly, a lot of our clients in an effort to convey the excitement of their story can often say things and not in a way that is intentional in terms of misleading, but they'll use language, which I call them the superlatives, the best or things like that, right, Emilio? You're laughing because we've been through this and we've always found that there's ways that you can convey the story, but do it in a balanced way and not in a way that's overly promotional. I've never really believed in that approach. Two things, never be overly promotional and never, ever disparage your competition. It never looks good. And whether that's my clients or even bankers, it's not appropriate and it doesn't make you look good. There's a lot of good investment bankers out there. And I think having respect for them is really, really important. And I think with our clients, most of them do have differentiated technologies. So what we help them do is celebrate those technologies in the offering documents, but then also in the slide deck. And the slide deck is used to go out and do the marketing. And Amelia, should we talk a little bit about an IPO first or separately in terms of the things that need to happen and then get into M&A? Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well, I think that there's two main things that a company needs in order to get public. And one is an offering prospectus, often called an S1 document. And if you're unfamiliar with that, you can go onto the Edgar website, SEC Edgar. You could type it into your browser and type in any company and you could probably find their offering circular and other disclosures. It'll tell you everything you need to know about a company. And these are important documents because it's not just the story or the business section or the description of the business, but everything in terms of its financial disclosures, risk factors, which are incredibly important, everything that the investing public needs to know in order to make an informed decision. So that is a document that's available publicly to anybody who wants to invest in the security. But bankers, what we largely do is we are in charge of taking the company out on a roadshow. And the roadshow is designed for them to raise money. Typically, our clients, biotechnology clients, they'll go out and do an initial public offering, raising anywhere from 100 to $200 million. Sometimes smaller, sometimes larger, but that's about the average of all averages. And In order to get that kind of money, our clients and most biotechnology clients want to go out to the big money centers. They want to go out to the big investors, high quality biotechnology hedge funds. These are funds who will put in bids on the IPO for 10 million, 20 million, sometimes 50, once in a while, 100 million, depending upon how exciting the story is. And To do that, they need a powerful PowerPoint deck. Usually it's about 30 slides and it talks about the story. In the case of biotechnology, it talks about the drug or drugs that are being in development. It talks about the clinical trials that are being conducted, 
and it shows the data that they have to date, either in rats, which we call preclinical studies, or in humans, which are the clinical studies. And these are really important documents because it embodies what the company is all about. Now, even there, clients may feel that they can take a little bit more license, if you will, in the roadshow deck than the S1. But Emilio, maybe I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, no, that's not the case. So what we do as lawyers and working with the team at Jeffrey's is reviewing that document, your roadshow document, to make sure that all the material information that's in the document is required to be in your S1 registration statement. And again, we want all that information to be fair and well-balanced, as Kevin mentioned. Another example I like to mention is a client may say that their drug is safe and effective even before it is approved by the FDA, which they should not do. It's overly promotional. And therefore, the way we try to balance those statements is to add caveats such as we believe the drug is safe and effective or we've designed the clinical trial to prove that the drug will be safe and effective or words to that effect. There's also a risk factor section in the prospectus. Can you talk a little bit about that and how important that is, Emilio? And that's critically important, all of those risk factors. One of the concepts we didn't touch upon is when we're drafting these documents, we're really drafting them for multiple purposes or multiple legal purposes. One is we're drafting it to comply with SEC rules. They also need to be drafted to comply with stock exchange rules, whether it's NASDAQ or the NYSE. And lastly, they also need to protect the company and the underwriters from potential liability, from litigation, from claims by plaintiffs. So a lot of the risk factors, for example, are drafted to protect the company and the underwriters against litigation. And they've been evolved over the years as we've seen litigation and the types of risk factors that help protect our client, we'll be sure to mention certain risk factors. And you need to tailor those risk factors for the company and their specific business and their specific life cycle in the clinical development process. So you need specific risk factors, whether it's for preclinical development, different risk factors, whether it's your phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. Does the company have a pivotal clinical trial? So those are all critical factors. With risk factors, I used to think that risk factors were the investment bank's friend, but I also think that they are the friend of the company as well. I've come to realize that bad news is not bad as long as you disclose it. I'm always amazed when, as long as you put something in your risk factors or you press release things in a timely manner, well, look, sometimes the stock might go down, but at least you don't have the issue or the liability of not disclosing it. I've seen some times where deals get sideways when there isn't the proper disclosure in place. And as a rule of thumb, always, always disclose things in a timely manner. The result is not half as bad as you think it might be. That's exactly right. That's true. There's a new SEC rule that was recently adopted because of the risk factors have gotten so long that now they require a summary of your risk factors to start the risk factor section. And that summary cannot be more than two pages long. So that's a new rule that was recently adopted. And you'll see that in the company's disclosure documents. To me, it's a good thing, right? You want the investing public to be fully informed of everything. And 
The thing about our industry is that it's highly risky. It's very, very risky. The majority of these companies don't have any revenue and therefore no earnings. They are what you might call story stocks, if you will, until they actually get positive clinical data. So investors need to understand that when they're making investment decisions. So I just think the more disclosure, the better. That's great. So we could spend the whole session on IPOs, but let's pivot to M&A transactions. So if you have a biotech company and they're not going public and maybe they decide to sell to a pharma company, they may decide to sell. Obviously, as their lawyer, we will help that company to prepare for their due diligence, make sure all their legal documents are in order. Again, that they've dotted all their I's, crossed all their T's. We will help to prepare a purchase agreement or a merger agreement. And again, tailor those reps and warranties for their business. And similar to disclosure, you may not be preparing a public disclosure document, but you might be preparing some type of information document, some type of PowerPoint, again, with the bankers to help present to a potential uh, acquirer. So maybe, Kevin, you could touch upon that. Sure. I think it might be important to split the discussion into M&A for private companies and M&A for publicly listed companies. Private biotech companies, when they're sold, are often bought in what we call a structured way. So I would say probably 99% of those transactions involve an upfront payment and then some future milestones that are paid out upon the achievement of those milestones. A lot of time it's positive clinical trial data and or FDA or European Union approval of that drug. Sometimes you also see royalties, sometimes you don't, but they tend to be a bit more structured. As advisors, we're going to be working with a company to represent them in either an auction or in just representing them if they receive an unsolicited offer. With biotechnology companies, we often get asked to represent companies to auction them or to try to find a buyer. But I can tell you that those types of approaches are not often successful. The best M&A happens when you have a suitor who approaches the company with interest and usually puts in an offer for the company. It's very hard to sell an early stage biotech company that does not yet have data or sufficient proof of concept, we call it POC or proof of concept, to get a buyer interested. The buyers of these companies are very large multinational companies. All of these are investment-grade companies, over $100 billion in market cap, and they have a lot of money. They do not mind waiting for that proof-of-concept data and paying a lot more money for that company as opposed to buying a company when it's frankly got a lot of risk remaining, even for a couple of hundred million dollars. So as investment bankers, we need to be careful about transactions, if you will, and advise our clients appropriately as to their approach. That's not to say that we don't work on those, but I think when asked to do just a broad auction on a company, we'll usually have a conversation with a client and try to figure out what's the best way to go about doing it. With respect to public companies, they are often not auctioned. It's very rare when you see a public company say that we want to put ourselves up for sale. You rarely see it. 
most of the time there's a public company and they receive usually an unsolicited offer from a larger company about an acquisition. And that's when we get to work representing them, doing valuation work and advising them on strategy in order to get the most appropriate value for their company. So that's just a broad overview in terms of what happens in the M&A process. Great. That's helpful. That's super helpful. So that leads us to our next point, that it's especially important in the life sciences industry for advisors to understand the science and regulatory environment. As your deal lawyer, I may not completely understand the chemistry or biology, unlike your patent lawyers, but I believe we need to understand what is meant by those terms, such as small molecule versus large molecule and biologics, or concepts of personalized medicine and immunotherapy. We also need to understand the mechanism of action of certain products and product candidates. And lastly, it's important for us to understand the regulatory pathway for these companies. Is it a 505B1 pathway or 505B2 pathway? Again, these are different pathways of clinical trials pursuant to FDA rules. All of these concepts are important, whether it is to draft public disclosure or to draft representations and warranties in a merger agreement. Kevin, maybe you could add to this point from your perspective. Why is it important for your banker to understand the industry? Well, I think there's lots of different reasons, and I tend to think in Excel in terms of modeling out the valuation of a particular company. Emilio, you were just talking about a 505B2 pathway. Generally, that is for a drug that has already been approved, but there's a company who is coming up with a different way of delivering that drug. So since the molecule itself has been through the FDA and has been approved and has usually been approved as being safe, all drugs have side effects, but I'll put safe in quotations, that company doesn't have to go back through all of the phases of development. They don't have to do a phase one safety, a phase two dose ranging study, and then a phase three efficacy study. They can just do one study and then apply for approval. So it's important to understand a company like that because generally speaking, their R&D spend is going to be a lot lower than a company who's developing an entirely new molecule, one that has never been approved before. And it's also important because generally speaking, 505B2 compounds, they usually don't sell as much as some of the newer molecules, some of the new molecules that have a breakthrough efficacy and are really, really game changers. 505B2s tend to be improvements on an existing drug, and there's a market for it, but they tend not to be enormous drugs. So there's some companies who just go the 505B2 route, and there are certain companies who like to buy those. There's also certain companies that don't like to buy those molecules because they're not in the business of just coming up with new ways to deliver the same drug. Most of the large-cap pharmaceutical companies in this world they're not interested in those compounds. These are large biotechnology companies. They're about innovation. They're about their own labs and discovery. And they do that because they're looking for drugs which can be impactful and really change people's lives. So those are compounds that are going to be filed through an NDA or a new drug application 
or a BLA, which is a biologics license application. And that's for true biotechnology companies. So that's just one example of why you have to be conversant with these things within the industry. That's good. That's very helpful. And just a little nuance on the 505B2. There is somewhat of a hybrid where there are some innovative 505B2 companies where you might take a compound that was previously approved for one indication, but then test that drug on a new indication. So it's less clinical trials and maybe an easier clinical pathway, but still somewhat innovative and maybe a cross-section between these two different pathways. Agree. All right. So when we start the session, it feels like a half an hour flew by and we only have a few minutes left. So in the few minutes that we have to wrap up, can you share your commentary on the status of the biotech public offering and M&A market for 2022? You commented a little bit about it when we started off the session, especially given the volatile market as of recently. Sure. I'd be happy to talk about that right now as we sit here on March 3rd. The biotechnology equity markets are very, very challenged, and they probably are as challenged as I've seen them in quite some time, maybe 10 years. At this time last year, the industry was probably sponsoring maybe four IPOs a week and about seven or eight follow-on offerings each week. Now, that was a very, very healthy clip, but everybody was raising money and they were raising money at good valuations. Oftentimes, they'd be upsizing their transactions. In other words, they'd start off at 100 million and they'd raise it to 125 million just due to overwhelming demand. But towards the back half of last year, things got a little bit choppy. And with these things, they tend to build upon themselves. And right now, it's been an aggregation of a lot of negative factors. Number one, quite frankly, a number of these companies, their clinical data failed. There was a number of companies who were sitting at around six, seven, eight billion in market cap. These were very, very highly regarded companies. And the data that they showed in phase two was so encouraging that most investors thought that it was sure to work in phase three. And when the phase three came around, it didn't work at all. And several of these companies lost 80% of their value in one day. And when you're an 8 billion market cap company, and most of the investors have a stake in those companies, everybody loses. And there's about five of them within the span of a couple of months. The other factor was that the FDA has gotten more conservative the other way you could look at it is maybe they've just gotten a little bit more stringent, but there have been a lot of clinical trials that have been placed on hold. There have been a lot of CRLs or complete response letters on new drug applications, a lot of them. And that just means that we're unable to accept the application in its current form. And there's been a lot of delays in applications. Generally speaking, when you submit your new drug application, a 10-month clock starts. And in 10 months, you should hear yes or no. Well, a lot of companies have gotten to that date and the FDA just says, we need a three-month extension. And that doesn't happen very often, but in the last four months, it's happened a lot. We've seen that. And that is an anomaly 
That's never happened before, and it's happened in the last three to six months. And I think part of that is because the FDA has been overwhelmed recently with the vaccine work, and they've publicly announced that they have resource constraints. So that's been taxing on them, but it's been taxing on the whole industry. And like you said, we've seen a number of delays. COVID surely is a factor, and that needs to be considered. And then, of course, you've got the macro issues going on right now. We had inflation. And then nobody really expected a war like the one that we're seeing in Ukraine right now, but that doesn't help. And it's interesting because in biotech, there's always this belief that macroeconomic and geopolitical things don't really impact our market. And generally, that has been true. It has been a very resilient market. But when you have the other types of things that have happened, it certainly doesn't help. So now you fast forward to today. This week, there will be no offerings of any sort. Last week, no offerings. The week before, maybe one. It has literally fallen off a cliff. So that's a time where we believe as advisors, as bankers, that we have to be more creative for our clients. Our clients still need to raise money. So we're figuring out ways of getting them to the really big money centers and maybe some alternative lenders, some alternative equity providers to get them the capital that they need. Now, a lot of people often ask and they say, well, with stocks down so much, doesn't that mean that there's going to be a lot of M&A? Because the big caps are going to say that things are cheap. And in my view, it doesn't work that way for a couple of reasons. The large cap pharma companies, as I said, have a lot of money. In the past era, nothing stopped them from paying full value when stocks were performing very well. We saw a lot of M&A. Because something's on sale, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to step in and do things. They are going to continue to want high quality and, generally speaking, compounds that are post proof of concept. Usually that's phase two data. But the other dynamic is the targets or the sellers, right? If you're down 50% in three months, you psychologically are going to think that you're still worth what you were three months ago and it's going to come back. So when somebody comes in and says, hey, how about a 60% premium off of your current price? They're going to say no. And that's actually maybe a cue, Emilio, for where bankers and lawyers work together on the defense side of public companies when you get an untoward advance in a time like this. Yeah, that's true. We are working with our clients, especially now in this current stock market, as their stock prices have come down and valuations have come down, to think about defensive mechanisms, whether it's a shareholder rights plan or a poison pill or other defensive governance mechanisms to put in place. So that's also important. And we work with the bankers all the time in evaluating that for these companies. Yeah, it's interesting because defense is important for clients. And our recommendation is that clients always have a good defense plan in place. But I think a lot of times bankers pitch defense 
and a lot of things don't necessarily make sense. I think if you've got good counsel, they're going to help you with the things that Emilio just talked about, the shareholder rights plans, other types of provisions that can give them a defense. But when you look at the biotechnology industry, there has been almost zero hostile activity, almost zero. There are no corporate raiders who come after small biotech companies because what's their thesis there? The drug either works or it doesn't. It's not like management's doing a bad job, right? You do see it in specialty pharmaceutical companies or small pharma operating companies that perhaps have had some challenges and you've seen that. So I sometimes ask myself, why are we pitching defense to a biotech company when no one is going to have any hostile activities? Now, there is defense from the standpoint of being prepared in case somebody comes in privately and makes an offer for your company. We just use the example of you're down 50% and somebody tries to get you for cheap. There, you need to have several board discussions with your banker and with your lawyer, and you need to make a decision whether or not you want to accept a proposal, entertain a proposal, or not. And companies are very much in their right to just say no and shut something down and not pursue it. That's true. That's definitely correct. And in those cases, we often advise the client and the board to work with the banker to possibly do evaluation, for example, to justify the fact if you want to reject an offer, especially if it's a significant premium over your current stock price, you may not need a formal fairness opinion, but at the same time, you want evaluation from a banker, something to support the fact that the offer was significantly undervalued and notwithstanding the premium to the stock price, the company has a lot more future value. Yeah. Agreed. So that's very helpful. Again, thank you for your insight and for your outlook for 2022. I'll come back to you at the end of the year to see if your projections were correct. And thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. It was great speaking with you as always, Emilio. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening to DLA Pipers at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the series so you can receive notifications about new episodes. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper, LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Dealey Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.